0: those who remain. Let's turn to Acts chapter 12. We'll be looking at the first five verses together with a sermon that I have entitled, Bound to Christ or Shackled to Christ. If you, find, if you found that in your Bibles, say amen. This past Thursday, I was heading to the church early morning probably before six o'clock meeting with a group of men and we'd meet every Thursday we meet for prayer and we meet to admonish one another in other words we like to meet to kick one another in the seat of the pants when we need it and so we meet every Thursday morning to pray and to search the scriptures together and I was I was driving on the way to church and I was probably about a mile away from the church and I looked over in a field and I And as I was driving down, I noticed this light piercing the fog and piercing through the darkness. You know, as they say, it is darkest before the dawn. And so it was dark. And all of a sudden, there was this light that was emanating. And as I got closer, I realized that the light was emanating from this church. And it was piercing through the thickness of the fog and piercing through... The darkness, I was about a mile away before I noticed it, and at first I thought it was strange. Now, I'm not an X-Files type of person who would say that's a UFO or anything like that, an unidentified flying object or any of that type of thing, but I thought it was a little strange. But then I had this thought. The thought was that that light emanating from the church is a good example, is a good illustration of how we must be as followers of Christ in a world that hates the gospel and to shine through the darkness. And so I also understand at the same time that the light from the church is a light from the building that we call the church house. If this church was to crumble tomorrow, the church would still exist. Amen. But it also stands as a reminder, a beacon of sorts, of how we must, every day of our life, point people to Jesus. Now, last week, or a week before, I issued a challenge And that challenge was to shine a light on error, on brokenness, on sin. And by pointing people to the risen Christ. Not that we ourselves are the light. Jesus is the light. But to shine a light on error and brokenness and and sin. And point people to the risen Christ. In fact, we are reminded in 1 John Chapter 1 and verse 7, here's what that says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so being in Christ Jesus will give illumination, will shine a light. It will give evidences of your faith. If you are in Christ the Bible tells us that you are a new creation, a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And you won't act the same. You won't talk the same. You won't see things the same. You will be changed. And there will be evidences in your life. There will be an illumination, an unveiling, a, a revelation of sorts that will show that you are genuinely in faith and you are walking with Jesus. And there was a challenge I issued for us last week or the week before. And here's, here's the challenge. The challenge was, will you shine for Jesus? And you might say, well, that sounds like some cliched question that is only church insiders should know. And it sounds like what we might call Christianese in the sense of posing that question. And that might be the case. But is it true? Will you shine for Christ? Is there truth in that question? Is it a true, engaging question that you must ask? Maybe reversing or reverting that question a bit. Have you been a light for Jesus in the world that is dead and going to hell? Now, today, we are issued another set of challenges in Acts chapter 12. A new day for a Christ follower means new challenges. There are new challenges. Sometimes there are revisited challenges. Sometimes they are new challenges. But we always face challenges in in this life as Christ followers, as long as we live. This world is not our home. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. We're strangers in a strange land. And so new days bring new challenges. And so today, I want you to grab your Bible. I know you have it before you. So I want us to read from God's Word these first five verses, and let's examine what does it mean to be bound to Christ, shackled to Jesus. So if you will, I'll ask you, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Standing in reverence from God's Word, I think, is a reflection of what we know deep down inside. I'm going to stand for the reading of God's Word because I know it is true. I know it is absolute. I know these are words of life. So let's begin verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jew, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was the days of unleavened bread. In your Bible, I want you to make a note of that. If you've got to underline it, that this was the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Father, we ask your blessing of the reading of this word. Father, penetrate our heart and mind with your word and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've been following along in the book of Acts with us, I hope you have. If not, you can always go to uh, Spotify, follow us on Spotify, and you can catch up. Uh, on all of the sermons through the book of Acts. You can find them there, and you can also find them on our Facebook as well to keep, to keep caught up. But you'll know at this time in history, for the history of the church, God was beginning to gather his people to himself in the name of Jesus. He was beginning to gather himself. And Now, I would challenge you, any you read scripture from beginning to end, how many in here have a daily Bible reading plan in place. How many read through the Bible? Listen, I'll challenge you if you're reading in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Mark the times when you see this gathering together and a scattering. Scattering. There is a theme throughout the canon of Scripture of a scattering because God's people were full of idolatry and had turned their back against the one true God, and then God offering a remedy through Himself of gathering His people. And we begin to see this gathering in, in Acts. And by the time we get to the book of Revelation, we see this gathering of a multitude of people, like the sand of the sea that God has brought together from every tribe, nation, tongue, and all people. What a beautiful Beautiful picture of God scattering because of judgment and then bringing together and the Jews and the Gentiles are now they are accepted into a right relationship with God through Jesus the risen the risen Christ we see this in the house of Cornelius the Lord is beginning to move his people outward north, south, east, and west he 's beginning to move his people out into the uttermost parts. the Gentile community now as believers in Jesus are beginning to grow spiritually, they're they are beginning to grow numerically, and, and more opposition is coming now from, from the Hebrew nation, from the religious high order. And the last time we were in the book of Acts, the very end of Acts chapter 11, they were in Antioch. And Saul and Barnabas, they are engaging the church at Antioch, and they're beginning to build gospel communities. It's important for us to build a solid gospel community. They are investigating. They're going out and they are teaching. And they took a whole year to teach sound doctrine, a whole year to teach the gospel of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. It took them a year and they were were teaching and they were intentional and they were going out meeting the people where they were at. Now, the themes that we'll find today in these first five verses, I mentioned some of them briefly in our corresponding scripture. Some of the themes that you will find if you're going to write these down would be, number one, God's sovereignty. And by the way, this is a theme that threads through all of Scripture. God's sovereignty. Second, we'll find persecution. That that there will be times in our lives that we might suffer persecution. Jesus, in fact, said that when you are persecuted, not if. And then lastly, we'll find prayer. What was the church doing? Were they praying? Were they seeking the Lord's face? We'll find those three things today in God's Word. Sovereignty, persecution, and prayer. First, I want to begin with verse 1 and 2. And if I was to subtitle this one point, I would say there is a reigning on the just and the unjust. Reigning on the just and the unjust. Now, this phrasing should seem familiar to you it is the teaching from jesus himself on the sermon on the mount in regards to loving your enemies and for those who persecute you when's the last time that you loved on your enemies and loved somebody who persecuted you better yet when's the last time that you were persecuted for your faith so jesus said in matthew 5 verse 45 he said for he makes his son rise on evil and on good meaning this That there will be adversity hardship that will come upon the wicked and also on people who consider themselves to be just and upright and righteous before the Lord then he carries on with the blessing saying and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust as well rain being a symbol of God's blessing upon earth now for a time even the unjust seemed to be blessed by what we call God's common grace the very fact that the wicked who are alive today and seem as if they are thriving the very fact that they can take one one breath of life is a testament to god's grace and mercy now on the flip side of that there will come a time that said wicked will have to answer before a holy and righteous god you might look at somebody's life who is an atheist an agnostic a god hater and you might say, Well, look, they're doing well. They're a billionaire, they're doing well. It seems as if everything they touch turns to gold. It seems as if if they are in corruption or if there's any wickedness in their life, it looks as if they are God, they're getting away with it. All contraire. There will come a time when they will stand before a holy and righteous God who knows the intentions of their heart. And he will judge them based upon. Not their works, but upon their son, his son, or the lack thereof. Has the righteousness of Christ been applied to their lives? Nay. And so they will be judged. Now, the blessings and sovereignty of God is seen in two ways. Particularly in the life and death of James and Peter. In James and Peter so let's look at these two verses together first let's look at verse 1 now about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church underline that in your Bible laid violent hands here is King Agrippa the first this is this King Herod what made him so famous what made him so liked amongst the Jews amongst the Hebrew nation was that he had some lineage and he was known because his grandmother was linked to the Hasmonians, and was linked to the Jewish revolts. Now, in between your Bibles, there is something that we call the intertestamental period. In our English Bible, it is between Malachi and Matthew. In the Hebrew canon of Scripture, it would be the Chronicles that would end. And then we pick up in Matthew. Right in between there, right in that time of history, is what we call the intertestamental time of history. And this would be the time of these Jewish revolts. How many in here have heard of the holiday Hanukkah? So right in between here is these Hasmonean revolts. And this King Herod had a grandmother from these families that led in those revolts. In fact, the Hasmoneans, they fought off Greek influences. They fought off paganism. They defeated one by the name of Anticus Epiphanes. And this Anticus Epiphanes sometimes is referred to as the abomination of desolation. And what did this abomination of desolation do? He sacrificed a pig in the holy of holies, an unclean animal on the most holy place, in rebellion against the one true God. And there was a priest who caught wind of, who saw it, and and led a revolt. Not only did they lead a revolt and defeat Antiochus Epiphanes, but they began to secure their independence from the Greeks. They reestablished the temple to worship to Yahweh, and then they temporarily, for a short time, they restored the glory of Israel as a nation. That is, until the Roman Empire took control and came into power. So this King Herod here has ties to this this old regime which made him well-known and favorable. In fact, you'll find in verse 3 that he was looking to please the Jews. That is what is said of King Herod. Now, the influence and momentum of the early church began to grow as we looked at a map a few weeks ago. We saw how the gospel was beginning to, sh- to spread north, south, east, and west and going outward, fulfilling that Acts 1-8 paradigm, that Acts 1-8 uh, framework, And this Herod, no doubt, saw them as a threat. And so the Bible tells us that he set forth his hand to kill and persecute the early church. Which implies this term that is used to afflict the church, to afflict them, meant that he sought to do them harm or to do them evil. By the way, church, this is the world we live in. This isn't just isolated to James and John and Peter and the apostles. This is just isolated and encapsulated in this time of history. This is the world we live in. Since the beginning of humanity, the enemy has always looked for ways into which he can harm or cause evil to God's people. Nothing is new. Nothing is new. But we do also know that this is afflicting the early church again the theme that we are navigating around is God's sovereignty it is said of Herod that he killed James the brother of John with the sword not that he himself killed James but gave the order to have him killed now this James is and was called by Jesus one of the sons of Thunder He is commonly called James the Greater in contrast to James the son of Alphaeus who is called James the Laos. But what is most important about this transaction here is that Jesus predicted that they would would die. Jesus predicted that they would suffer persecution. In fact, we find it in Matthew 20. Verse 23, we find it in Matthew 10, verse 3. We find it in Mark 10, verse 38. And then we find it in Matthew 20, verse 23, that reads this. You shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They would suffer death. One would die rather quickly, being James, who we're only told just a little bit about, and Peter would die probably some 20 years later, and then John would die of old age. Now, we do not know why Luke is just telling us so little about, about James and his death, but then tells us so much about Stephen as we, as we find in, uh, in Acts chapter 8. Why did, why did Luke tell us so little about James and so much about, about, about Stephen? And we don't know why Herod had selected uh, James to, to die. We do know by the early church historian Eusebius who wrote of Clement of Alexandria Clement of Alexandria was a contemporary of John of John the Apostle and so he he walked pretty close to John the Apostle Clement of Alexandria once Uh, purported or once said that a Jew made accusations against James and then was beheaded at the same time with him. We don't know what the accusations are, but it raised some concern according to the early church historian and was beheaded because of this accusation. Look at verse 3. I ask you to underline this in your your Bible at the very end of verse 3. I want to introduce to you a taste of irony. Here's a taste of irony. In verse 3, it says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded, this is Herod, proceeded to arrest Peter also. And then Luke adds this little note at the end saying, This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now we see how King Herod's ego was, was being fed by the people. King Herod was a people pleaser. He was a people pleaser. And by the way, churches today are filled with people who are just in the game to please people. There are people in our churches today who just want to please. They just want to be a yes man. They just want to say, I'll do this. I don't want to compromise. I want to, I'm going to compromise on these things or that. There are people, there are pastors who will stand in the pulpit and will not preach God's word because they want to tickle ears and please people. And so this isn't anything new either. Herod saw that it pleased the Jews to kill James, and so he arrested Peter that no doubt, if the Lord did not intervene, Peter would suffer the same fate. But why is this? Why did I have you underline the days of unleavened bread? Why do we mark that? Why is this portion of this verse so ironic? Well, following the meaning behind the Days of Unleavened Bread, you will find that this was a time of reflection and a memorial for the Hebrew nation, for Jewish people. What did this festival memorialize? Why did this festival exist? Why was this festival set aside? What was it used to bring back memory of in their life? The Bible informs us that the Israelites were to eat only unleavened bread every year during Passover as a memorial of the exodus from Egyptian bondage. We find this this in Deuteronomy 16.3. We find it prominently in Exodus 12 and 8, Numbers 9 and verse 11. Since the children of Israel were to leave so quickly... The Lord was going to deliver them out of, out of bondage and out of, from under Pharaoh's thumb and was going to give them freedom and out of bondage. And they were supposed to leave so quickly. They did not have time for even the bread to rise. And so they were instructed not to ha- add any leaven or yeast to the bread. Again, what did the days of unleavened bread represent and why is it so ironic here? It stood for being freed from bondage. It stood for being free and freed people. And yet, during this very festival, leaning into freedom, Herod kills one apostle and imprisons another. And by the way, James the Greater is the first apostle to become a martyr for Jesus. And John would be the last to die of old age. To demonstrate the blind state of people, Luke says Herod's actions pleased the Jews. He was looking how he might please them. Again, Herod was a people pleaser. They are spiritually blind, in fact, spiritually dead. And they are in need of the very Savior that James and Peter came preaching of to really, truly liberate them. The festival was just, they were just eating bread. They were just eating bread and were lost as a goose. Going through the motions, heart far from God. Now people will often look at these first few verses with laser-like focus, and they'll zero in on the arrest and subsequent release of Peter, and celebrate. Look how God moved so greatly. And we will see in a moment that the church begin to pray, and Peter will be released in an extraordinary way. And we'll look at this and say, "Wow, God was moving in an extraordinary way. And we forget that there was an apostle that died before before Peter. And we will see that Peter will be released in an extraordinary way. But this question permeates, why is one released and why is one killed? You may not even have asked yourself that question. You may not have even thought about it. You may have glossed over this. And you may be looking at me now and saying, well, preacher, I hope that you're going to tell us why one released and why one is killed. And in some way, if you're a student of God's word, you already know to some degree how to answer that question. It is like the Lord rains blessing on the just and the unjust. Sometimes people of the Lord will go through adversity. They will go through what the world might see as adversity and hardship. And if I was to answer this question, I would answer it leaning on the holiness of God. We sung of God's holiness. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. If I was to answer this question, I would say something like this. Why was one killed? Why was one released? Because he is sovereign and he is holy and we are not. And you might say, that's a cop-out preacher. But he is eternally sovereign. Now we have kings that exist And we might say King George was the sovereign, but that sovereign died. That sovereign was born and died. Our Lord is eternally sovereign and in control of all things and in all places. We might say that there were some people in the Bible that are considered to be holy. The word is hagios, set apart but they will die and they die. And so God is also eternally holy. He is sovereign in control and he is holy and we are not. I mean, listen to this. If we are going to doubt God's motives, then we can question him about anything in life. We could say, Lord, why did this saint of the Lord who lived for you, who, who, who loved Jesus, who talked about salvation every day that they could. Why did this saint of the Lord, why did they get eat up with cancer and die at a young age? Why, God? And yet the, the wicked, the wicked fornicator, the wicked molester, the wicked you name it, flourishes in life and seems as if they are doing well and looks as if they are doing well. May I remind you again that he is God and we are not, and that you can trust him even when things don't make sense. Sometimes things don't make sense, and that's okay. But I do know one thing, that our God is sovereign, and our God is in control. There have been many times when I would say, Lord, I I know you're trying to teach me something, but what is it? Have you ever asked that? Lord, I know you're trying to show me something, but what is it? Trusting in the Lord is a huge, huge step in our life. But why did Peter die? Or why did James die and Peter live? Why did James James die and Peter live? Because our trustworthy, sovereign God, he is in control of making the name of his son known in the world. And however this would look, just what does it mean for God to be sovereign? It means that God has the right to do as he wishes with his creation. And I wish I had an illustration. I was thinking to myself, you know, I was thinking about, and I've used this before, Bob Ross. You know who Bob Ross is? Painting a little, a little happy tree here. A little happy mountain here. I thought to myself, that's kind of what we see here. God has, it's his creation but, but see, in this, in this illustration, it breaks down because Bob Ross is dead and gone now. And he doesn't have, uh, he, he's, he's not eternal. And if Bob Ross wanted to rip that picture up, he has the right to do it because it's his. If the Lord God wanted to vanquish all of this earth right now with a f- snap of his finger, he could do it. Why? Because it's his. But God is long-suffering. He is just. And here is, here is an adjective to add to God's character, not add to, but to describe God's character. He is salvific, meaning God seeks to save the lost. And that's why for one more to come to Christ, one more that we might see to be wicked, might take one more breath, and then the Lord might call that person to himself as they forgive or as they repent. The Bible shows us in Isaiah 40, verse 15. It says, look at the nations. They are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale. He lifts the coastline as if they were dust. Now, this also indicates that there is no exterior influences upon God. There's nothing that will add to God to make him better. There's nothing that you can add to God's character that that will... enhance his betterment and make him better no exterior influence upon him he has ability to exercise his right and his will so coming out of this i would ask you do you trust him do you trust god do you trust him are there things that you are holding on to that should be lifted up before the one who is in control are there things in your life today that you need to bring before the lord And know this, that if it rains on the just and on the unjust, and the sun shines upon the evil and on the just, and if we know that, if we are bound to Christ, if we are bound to the trustworthy sovereignty of Christ, then we are committed to forever trust that he has every situation in control and everything will work for the glory of God. Do you believe that? That everything will work for the glory of God no matter how bad or twisted or wicked something might seem in this world so again do you trust God you might say yeah pastor I trust God I pray to him every day and that's not what I'm asking you sometimes we pray as if we don't trust God sometimes we pray as if we don't trust the sovereignty of the Lord here's an example of the motives of our heart. It might be framed something like this. Lord, I'm not sure you heard me the first time, but can you heal so and so? Now, it's good to intercede. It's good to intercede for people. I believe connection with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord is important. God, I don't know if you heard me, but can you heal my leg? Lord, I don't know if you heard me the first time, but can can you heal my back or... Or sister, so-and-so's cancer or whatever it might be. And it's good to pray for those things, but wouldn't it be better to pray, God, may your will be done. And this might come as a shocker to you, but it may be in God's will that the person who is prayed for to be healed might actually go through the suffering because they will walk through it gracefully and point people to Jesus while doing so. Now, I must remind you that a lot of what our revival speakers spoke of was some of these things here. And, and this is how the Lord works. These notes were was grafted before Just, Mr. Justin Peters came to speak to us. This sermon was prepared before Justin ever came. But it's good how God coordinates things for us to remember. It's good for us to see how God stitches things together for us, for our benefit and our good and for His glory. I mean, what is the most important thing in life for you to be healed of your disease and your ailment and never really say much of Christ or suffer grace, gracefully in Jesus' name and be able to point a few people to the saving power of Jesus? And you might say, well, there is a third option. And there might be. But whatever we do, we go through this life. If we suffer, we suffer gracefully. Now, here's where Peter's arrested in verse 4. They had seized him and they put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, to the religious, it would have been improper. It would have been a sin to bring this prisoner out. During this festival. But then again, there is irony because this festival was a time to memorialize freedom, coming out of bondage. There are 16 soldiers that are mentioned here. They are assigned to guard the Apostle Peter. So, did Herod see Peter as a threat? Sure. The Romans divided the night into four different watches so that they could be relieved and they would guard in three hour blocks. There would be four on duty. Two would have been with the prisoner and two outside. It seemed that Herod Herod had an ear to the ground and his finger on the pulse of the culture. Now, if there's something that we as Christ followers, I think, can learn from Herod here, who is lost, who is wicked, something that we can learn from Herod as followers of Christ is to have our ear to the ground and our fingers on the pulse of our culture to know how to engage that culture. And Herod seemed to be a master at this. He used his circumstances to become well-favored. And he may have even heard of Peter's previous escape recorded in Acts 5, verse 19. He said, During the night, an angel of the Lord Lord opened the prison doors and brought him out. And after this uh, celebration, this Passover celebration, the Lord, the Guards would have bring Peter out, he would stand before trial as convicted enemy of the state, and no doubt would have suffered the same fate as as James. But let me ask you this: what does the church do in times of trouble? What does the church do in times of turmoil? They might complain. They might cause division. They might plant their heels in on one stance and not be moved. They might gossip. A number of things that are harmful and detrimental to the church. What must the church do in times of adversity and hardship? I think verse 5 helps us. Peter was in prison, but the earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So they prayed. And in case you have not read ahead or you are unfamiliar with the narrative, here's a spoiler, spoiler alert, okay? Hopefully you've read ahead. Peter is released, but not by Herod. You'll notice the church was earnestly praying for Peter, and I love when we see bookends of the Bible. I love when we see that there are bookends. What I mean by bookends are ideas or words or verses that that highlight a certain truth to be brought out, and Luke does a masterful job of bringing out some bookends in Luke one, or, or sorry, Acts one, or Acts twelve, verse one and five. There's bookends that are encapsulated here. So think of it like this: Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-three. The Bible tells us as Matthew is describing the Emmanuel, what does he say of the Emmanuel? He says that he is God with us. And then we find in the Great Commission passages in Matthew 28, the very, towards the end of the book, he says, Behold, I am with you always. And I love it when there are bookends that kind of brings home, bring, homes this, bring home this truth. But I want you to notice there are some bookends here. I want you to notice that it is said that the church is in earnest prayer. And this word earnest means stretched out. As if to say, their hands are stretched out in prayer. It's the position of their heart in fervent prayer, laying transparent and open before God, fervently praying. So the idea is hands stretched out in fervent prayer. But what does it say of Herod? It says of Herod that he is seeking to lay violent hands. This also means stretched out hands to kill by the sword. So the church had their hands stretched out in earnest prayer. While there is adversity and while there is hardship and while there are things that are coming against the church today, people who are antagonistic to the gospel, who hate the name of Jesus, as there is persecution around the world, who stretch out one's hands when there is adversity, when the sun is shining in adversity upon you, what do we do? We stretch out our hands in earnest prayer to God and it looked like a this was a despairing case for Peter he was going to suffer the same fate as James if the Lord did not intervene and the disciples began to pray more seriously and by the way let me say this don't wait until things are desperate to fervently pray don't wait for prayer to be a last resort Build a lifestyle of prayer and worship, a lifestyle of seeking the Lord. Pray without ceasing. I asked you last week about prayer, and I asked you, are you fervently praying for the lost, the wayward, the undone by name? So much so that you're praying by their by, by name and by their face, and you know them, and you, it becomes part of your DNA. That burden becomes part of your DNA. You're burdened for them. And I don't know if this early church truly thought that Peter was going to be released It seems as if they thought that he was going to be released, but Lord's willing, next week you'll join us. We'll see the evidence of their doubts next Sunday as we press on through. But for today, are we so bound to Christ that we will accept that God is in control of every situation in our lives? If you were arrested and killed, would you have been able to say, I stand upon his sovereignty, whatever his will, if you are captured and released, that you would know that he is in control. I can't understand. This is what I can't understand. It's how God will heal somebody. The Lord will heal somebody, bring them out of sickness, bring them out of adversity, and they not go tell everybody in the world. I can't understand how the Lord will bring somebody through adversity and heart, and they not serve God fervently until their last dying breath. I don't understand that. It just goes to show you how, how quickly our heart and mind can get full of idols. John Calvin said that our mind is like a factory, an idol, a factory idols. It manufactures idols over and over again. And so, yeah. If the Lord was to take a loved one, then we know that he has, still has the whole world in his hands. So are we praying as if God is in control? Are we praying as if he has everything in control for his glory and his honor? And the verses today that I read, these five verses, are a reminder that he is in total control, that he is sovereign, even when there's persecution, even when there's the sun of persecution that comes beating down in adversity, and that we must seek him in every area of our lives in outstretched hands, in prayer. In fact, let's pray. Father, we do ask you this time, as we read through your word, it's easy for us to say that God is in control. It's certainly easy for us to say, to say that when things are going well, when we are not eat up with sickness or disease and we're not going through adversity. It's easy to say that. Father, it's when things come in life, when the trials of life come our way, that we can stand upon your word and say you are in control of every situation in life. And Father, we know, God, by your sovereignty also that you sent your son to die a death on a cruel, rugged cross, and then to rise again on the third day. This is the message that these early apostles were spreading from north, south, east, and west. They were anticipating a work from the Lord. They were anticipating people to be added to the kingdom of God daily through the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray today for the one here who needs that encouragement, that reminder, you're in control. Father, I pray for the one here today who your word has spoken to them. God, and they want to mean business with you today, I pray for them. Father, as we transition to this time... Of communion as we gather around the Lord's table I pray that we would use this time as we reflect upon the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus help us to contemplate on the very words that we heard this morning that our God reigns and we pray it now in Jesus name Amen